0: everyone and welcome to BJD Talks. We're the official podcast of the British Journal of Dermatology. In this podcast we try to look beyond our published studies and explore real-world implications of dermatology's research in an accessible way. This podcast is designed for anyone who's interested in skin health research, whether that makes you a dermatology professor, researcher, patient, registrar, or just simply a skin enthusiast. We hope You'll join us as we build on our world-leading research through friendly discussion. My name is Dr. Johnny Guckian and I'm a dermatology registrar here in Leeds in the UK, as well as being the BJD's podcast associate editor. Together in this podcast series, we'll dive into a massive range of issues which are relevant and important to dermatology, including patient and public involvement in research, social media and global dermatology.
1: I'm really pleased to welcome our latest guest for this uh, episode. You've met them both before on BJD Talks. All the way back from the first episode, we have Dr. John Ingram, who is the BJD editor and clinical reader and consultant dermatologist.
2: Um, Hi, John. Nice to see you again. Johnny, thanks for having me back. It's been a while, but uh, yeah, it's it's great to... uh join you again. Fantastic, thank you. And I've got
1: Professor Esther Freeman, uh, who is the BJD Section Editor for Global Health and Equity, as well as a Director uh, of Global Health Dermatology at Massachusetts General Hospital and Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School. Great to speak to you again, Esther. Hi, Johnny. So you know you've made it when you're back into the BJD Talks podcast twice, um, so there you go. That's <laughs> something you can. That's a line you can add to your CV. So <laughs> we we're here to talk about peer review because something something I've heard since being part of the B, the BJD is that peer review really matters to our journal and to our, our our dermatology profession and our scholarship community. Can you guys tell me a little bit about why peer review matters so much?
2: Yeah, peer review, you know, is the bedrock of uh, medical and scientific publishing. It it's not perfect, but it's the best we've got, and it' stood the test of time really so uh, I think that's the the sort of ultimate accolade uh you know in that getting a paper out there uh, that's been reviewed by our peers you know is ultimately the the yardstick that, that you know readers um, you know want to be reassured as has uh, taken place and um so you know there's been lots of different models of peer review, but um you know here at b j d we operate a process where our reviewers are are able to be blinded from the the submitters um, and they 're able to give their free opinions and uh, and then of course, our editorial team helps to integrate those into a, a decision on a manuscript but um, yeah i can 't stress enough how much we rely on our peer reviewers because they really provide us with uh, the sense check for a paper, the quality bar that you know they're able to sort of guide uh, us on uh, and you know they cover all the sort of different elements of a paper that uh, it allows us to. Uh, help people to make it as good as it can be.
3: So delighted that we're talking about this, Johnny. Because I really wanted to demystify the process of peer review. I think it can be a little bit intimidating, and especially if you're listening and you're a trainee, um, you know, a medical student or a resident, and you're thinking, "Well, this doesn't really apply to me." You know, the people I expect to be peer reviewers are, you know, full professor at like some academic institution, and the reality is that's just not true. And I think it can be a little intimidating to get started, um, but realizing that you already probably have the skills to be a good peer reviewer, and that there are, you know, with Peer review, we don't just send a manuscript up to one reviewer. We send it out usually to two to three reviewers. And so your particular perspective um, is really valuable. So if you look at a paper that's sent to you and you say, gosh, you know, I have expertise in one area, but not everything. Um, you know, that doesn't actually disqualify you from being a reviewer because we want to hear what you're familiar with and what you know about. And trust us that as editors, we're going to find someone that can fill in the gaps of that peer review to give us the perspective on the other areas. So I just wanted to say peer review is something you already are a peer. And so this isn't something that you need to wait another 10 or 20 years to be part of. You can be part of it now.
1: I love that. It's that kind of like equalizing, a hierarchy disrupting take on it. Um, and that can be quite uh, powerful. You mentioned skills to be
2: a good peer reviewer, both of you, what would you think those skills are? You know, The, the mechanics of, of peer review are really just assessing a paper for uh, its impact and its methodological quality. Um, and those two elements come together and they're not a specific skills set overall. There, are, there will be some extra skills to come into play in terms of the particular type of paper. So you know, sometimes, for example, when we uh, publish a clinical trial, then there's a set of things that we look at, at as a journal for the quality markers of a, a well-performed trial. So there are some things that can be learned, for sure. But many of our papers, uh, they're actually, you know, very much clinically orientated. And we're, we're looking for clinicians, uh, juniors, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, exactly uh, right to be giving uh, their views. Uh, and uh, anybody you know, with dermatology experience can then peer review. But uh, Esther, what do you think about about sort of s- particular types of paper and and the skills involved. Yeah,
3: sometimes it's almost helpful to think of an example. So I'll just give you an example paper that was published recently in the BJD um, in our section on the eumelanin skin uh, score and basically how we assess skin color and skin phototype. And I think, you know, if you look at a paper like that, I think there are multiple things that come into play. Um, There's the how you design the study. And so there might be someone who's reviewing the paper who has an expertise in methods or in epidemiology. That may not be you. Um, you could be someone who has a lot of experience in the literature around structural racism and history of how we perceive race and skin tone. That could be you. Um, so, you know, there are different pieces. And then there could be something that, um, so I, I think of another paper that involves, you know, if you were writing, an, and now I'm going to pull a fictional paper that doesn't exist. So, um, you know, if you're writing a paper on bullus pemphigoid, um, and I'm not sure why I chose Bullis pemphigoid, but we're going to go down this route. For Imagine you're writing a paper on bullous pemphigoid, and um, there's the study design of how how the study was set up, and you might be able to critique on that, but that may not be your area, and that's fine. But you might have ex- experience clinically in Bullis diseases, and you can comment on that. Um, or you might have expertise on inclusion of race and ethnicity and how that data is incorporated. So there are many different aspects of a study that you might have skills or expertise that you can bring to bear. And obviously we want you to comment on everything you can, but don't be afraid if you're like, I'm not an expert in all of these things. You know, I myself, you know, none of us are experts in all of these things. Um, and it's the same when we think about reviewing grants. Right? We're, we're asking you to comment on what's in the area of your own expertise.
1: Fantastic, thank you.
2: Yeah, and I, and I love it when a reviewer will say, this is what I can bring to the paper, and these are things that I can't bring. It's so helpful then to know, you know, in their comments to the editor, uh, I, you know, as you say, Esther, I've reviewed on my, the bit that I'm uh, very familiar with, and um, and I want to highlight that there are some elements that, that will need a different uh, reviewer to um, give input to. Uh, and for example, at BJD, we have statistics reviewers, and they're uh, within the journal team, and our editors, uh, you know, our associate editors can request that reviewer to provide that area of expertise that, of course, quite often, it's missing in a, in a set of, of clinical reviewers or clinical academic reviewers. So we, we make sure we've got that specific skill, and, and we can bring it in. And, and we, we, might, um, we often rely on our, our reviewers to highlight that this paper would benefit from a statistical review, and then uh, we can um, arrange that. So it's encouraged to, uh, yeah, as you say, focus on what, what you can bring and, and to highlight the areas that need different attention what i hear from reviewers sometimes or from
1: you know the the trainee perspective is that it's it's hard to calibrate um what kind of review you're going to be in terms of am i being some people think am i being too harsh or am i not being am i I not being harsh enough you've talked about not being expert enough and i guess one of the opportunities of this podcast is be able to peek behind the curtain because you get john you you get to review all the reviewers and review all the reviews where do you think this falls you think that you know, people are hitting the right note, do you think that this is something that people should be worried about or, or, or not so much?
2: There are a dozen hawks, aren't there, whenever people are, you know, giving criticism on a piece of work. I think for me, what I value most is constructive criticism, uh, a reviewer who is looking to help to enhance a paper and elevate it. And, you know, it's perhaps it's for the editorial team to make the, the call in terms of the the impact of a paper and whether it's reached the, the right bar, you know, BJD's bar is going up, so we have pretty high standards. But the reviewer doesn't necessarily have to make that call. You know, that's um, the editorial team and myself ultimately will do that. So, so the reviewer, I think, is there knowing that there's been some front-end triage that the papers that have come through, you know, are already quite strong. I think their primary role is to see if they can, um, yes, highlight um, major issues, but mainly to look to improve the things that they can and highlight things the authors could do that are achievable that would make it a stronger
3: paper. And Johnny, I wanted to kind of touch on just some concrete points of, you know, what does it mean to do a review? Because it may be that you were never trained on how to do a review. And so someone sends you a paper and you're like, great, I'm supposed to review this. Like, what do I actually do? So I just wanted to give you some kind of some concrete steps that I usually take. So the first thing is you you give it a read through just a once over overall without trying to really get into writing anything down or critiquing it. The first thing you need to do is just get a kind of an overall sense for the paper. Um, and so once you've done that, and you have kind of had a chance to think about it. sometimes I even read it once, put it down, you know, come back to it. Um, at another time or, you know, a couple minutes later. And then you're going to want to go through and you're really going to want to go through section by section and think about, you know, each section, you know, for example, starting with, you know, the introduction, and and you could do this in whatever order you want. So I often, you know, do start with the introduction. And the things that you're kind of thinking about during that second read through, you know, is that does the introduction set out the argument that they should set out? Do they really summarize recent research related to the topic? And do they really explain the objectives for what they're going to be doing? and set out their aims. Um, The next section you want to go through is your method section. And you want to think about is this replicable research? Do these have repeatable methods? Do they explain what they're doing? Does this follow best practice? Then you're going to go into the results in the discussion section. So, you really want to see that this is going to tell a nice, coherent story and that the results are you know, simple, also reflected in the tables and the figures, and that the conclusions, when you get to the discussion section, are really supported by the data in that paper, and that there is a section that talks about the implications of that work and that they should also clearly describe the limitations as well. And so, and kind of put it in context of the overall work they've been done. So that's the general way I think about each section. And then when we actually look at a review, the general format that I often like to see or that I teach my mentees and how to do it is that there's going to be a first paragraph where it's you, as a reviewer, you're going to write this paragraph that says, you know, thanks for letting me review. You don't even have to say that part. We know that you th- that, you know, we appreciate you reviewing. So I you don't have to say thanks because really, you know, we should be thanking you. But anyway, you might say, you know, this is a paper that focuses on X, Y, and Z. And the strengths of this paper overall are, you know, the strength of their methods, but you know, some limitations of this paper is that their discussion does not, you know, acknowledge the prior body of work or overstates the findings based on their results. So you're going to have like an overall summary paragraph that kind of lays out what your overall feeling is. And then what we recommend doing is really going section by section. And it's helpful if you can number your comments, because then when the authors of the review are going to write back to your review, they can say, you know, response to, you know, comment number 13 in the results section here is how we're going to change our data. So it's helpful to then go section by section. So we kind of looking for that overall paragraph and then a nice formatted thing where you say, this is my issues with the intro. This is my issues with the methods. Here's the results in the discussion. I mean, that's just one approach. I don't know, John, if that differs from how you often approach writing a review.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's um, exactly right. And SRI, the only other things that I often like is um, for people to maybe consider major points and minor points that can be useful because sometimes in a, in a review, you know, sort of small typos and so on, you, you don't want to have those up front you know they'd probably something to put at the bottom just for uh, additional sort of uh, help to the authors but yeah so that, that that I think can be useful and I think that also that you know, you get the box certainly BJD where you have comments for authors and a box of comments to editors and a couple of bits of guidance on, on that front is if there's any view around you know whether um, the work is publishable in the particular journal in this case BJD and um, that can go in comments to editors you know so that um, everything you know, in the author section, uh, uh, it should be, you know, able to be fed straight back to the author. So, you know, just uh, respectful and constructive, and then allowing the editors to make that call on whether the paper should be accepted or, or, you know, sort of, or not. But essentially, you know, those are sort of the, yeah, just how you present the uh, the review. And I think you can also put in that box to the editors where you think that additional uh, reviewers would be helpful if there's some gaps, you have know, the reviewers noticed that could be filled by by others. So, um yeah just a few thoughts on that that's really
1: helpful it's a really kind of comprehensive framework particularly Esther that that you provided with us and so if any listeners are literally sitting down to do some peer review that is a great step-by-step process it, it is a process and that it's just about following these steps and that can really reduce the cognitive load of that overwhelming thinking of what do I do now when you sit and look at a, a really big complex exciting paper um so that's really helpful thank you and so just while I have you, I wanted to ask you just within your role of the section editor for Global Health and Equity, I wanted to consider the global implications of peer review because peer review is something that really brings together perspectives from all over the world. Do you think we're doing enough in a global perspective um, in terms of getting reviewers from around the world or is it one of those things where we're dominated really by the, that Global North, as with a lot of other areas within within our scholarship.
3: Well, Johnny, I'm so glad you asked that question. I feel like you already kind of answered in your question what I wanted to say. So it's, it's really apropos. But, you know, I think this is something we really struggle with. There is a tradition, you know, in academic publishing that the people doing the peer reviews, you know, for the large part have been in the Global North, for the large part have been white. Um, often, you know, male, and I think that as we work towards diversifying our peer review, that's why it's so important. That's why we're really excited to do this podcast because, you know, you are all the people that we are trying to reach, which is that you know younger people coming in with wonderful and important expertise. Um, you don't need to be based, um, in indeed, in the global north. The idea is that really diversifying our peer review, because when I have a paper now that's coming into the global health and equity section on leprosy in Ethiopia. You know, I would really like to be able to call on peer reviewers who have expertise in that part of the world and who have expertise in leprosy, for example. And so, I think building up our reviewer pool who have really a diverse clinical set of interests and a diverse background and can really think, of I think that just brings so much more to the peer review process. So, I think you know, I'm really excited that the BJD, I think, is really a leader in this space in dermatology in terms of bringing in this section in global health and equity and thinking about how important peer review is. And the wonderful thing about peer review is, if you do a lot of work in peer review, then ultimately you often become an editor. And so, you know, really, I would love to say maybe John and I are kind of trying to work ourselves out of a job, right, John?
2: <laughs> well, you know, it, it's, it's brilliant because um, we need to be, um, you know, gaining in, in the sort of capacity in our system to better manage all the increase in manuscripts that come through here. We, we need those peer reviewer skills. And, and then, of course, it's great when those folks can progress and become uh, members of the editorial team. And Esther, you, you touched on the sort of mentor-menteeship process where we can nurture, you know, new reviewers. And I've often found that people pairing up is a really nice way of doing that, where you, you can sort of produce a review together where the, um, the the less experienced person can can just, you know, have that guidance.
3: Yeah, it's a great idea. If you are someone who's in training, Um, and you have a mentor, you can suddenly ask and say, you know, do you have peer reviews coming in that I can help with and and do your first couple of peer reviews with your mentor? I do this with my trainees and I think it's a great experience for them because, you know, I have them do their own review, I do a review, and then we kind of merge them together and we talk through it. And I think sometimes just the experience of doing a review with someone like looking over your shoulder is very helpful.
2: What I love also where we have in, in BJT, I would typically select somebody who's performed a really nice review in a timely way and invite them to write the commentary on the paper, which provides a, a publication in its own right for our reviewer. And there are lots of ways we can reward, reward reviewers, but um, I'm conscious that there's a lot of, of effort that goes on behind the scenes that isn't properly recognised. And so one way we're trying to improve that is by putting someone forward to write the commentary who's been a, a really you know, um, helpful reviewer for the paper and they know the paper well and, uh, and the subject well. So then they, they become a brilliant commentary writer. So um, that's one way we can reward our folks
3: I feel like this is like a secret in peer review that I didn't even realize as a peer reviewer. Um, I myself try to, you know, I, we do a lot for the BJD, but I also as I get a lot of peer review requests for other journals as well. And I try to do at least one a month as my way of kind of giving back to the dermatology international health community. Um, and this has actually happened to me twice, John, where I've ended up writing um, a commentary in the Lancet and a commentary in the BMJ. You know, these opportunities do come up if you, you know, write a good and timely review, you know, the opportunity to then be asked to write a publication related to to that paper um, is there and it's happened to me on several occasions and it's been a really great experience.
2: Yeah, I agree. It's a lovely way of, of really just um, adding value to a paper and and really you know, re- rewarding and recognizing the efforts of, of, of the reviewer who, you know, there's a lot of work that is going on that isn't always uh, acknowledged. So so yeah, I like that. And there is that standard way, Johnny, of registering on Publons to have your uh, reviewer uh, efforts, um, you know, properly you know, documented, and, and that's great for appraisal, for example, and that, that may be a really nice option for junior faculty in particular, just to demonstrate the, you know, um, the work that they're doing. But yeah, so I hope there's a, there's a range of, of rewards. Uh, one of the other ones being, of course, that you get to see inside the review process a bit, so that by reviewing, you understand then, uh, as an author, if you're, you know, writing papers, what you should be thinking of when you write your own paper and, and uh, anticipate the reviews that are coming your way uh, on the back of it.
1: I guess it's part of that you know, thinking more higher level, it's that community aspect. It's that you're paying it forward a little bit because, it, hopefully, if you do a good review for someone, you've you know a useful review for someone that's constructive and helpful, and encouraging that amongst others, you will then get a decent review for your work. And one thing when thinking about trainees who who are reviewing and then also trainees who are submitting work, maybe for the first time, they can be quite scared as well of either putting in a review or receiving review. And I like to look at this from both sides because it's. I try to frame it when I speak to people is that reviews are more of a conversation. By that point, as you say, it's gone through an initial triage. It's not always just going to be... F- always not always gonna be flatly rejected the people worry about that big reject email it's actually everyone is there with the same mission which is to produce good research and to get produce the best research that you can possibly you know uh, provide to the community it's all the same mission so sometimes I know that from at least from my experience when I started getting involved in research that you get that first email that might be like a a reject or you know reject with with uh, with with comments though uh, and possibility for resubmission people see the reject and think oh dear you know that's 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 it and I'm, I'm a failure because medics don't like to don't don't like rejection um but i i always just encourage people involved in research that it's a it's just a start of a conversation and the reviewers are there to help you and, and help get the the best version of your work out there
2: uh, yeah exactly you can only really uh, understand that conversation by having been on both sides of it perhaps you know and so i would really encourage our authors to review because you see both sides um and yeah it is that sort of investment in the community that um that does pay back and it may not pay back the following day, but, it, you know, it, it will, uh, I think, it be, be really uh, valuable for reviewers. And it is what our journal, all our journals rely on. So um, it's a vital uh, skill. I think it should be re- um, acknowledged more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at BJD, we have an annual um, publication of all our reviewers. For example, we, we put their names in prints, uh, always looking for you new know, uh, ideas for how we can um, reward our review is better, and always looking to think about the training that we can help people with to get into reviewing. So certainly, you know, the the B A D uh, offers um, support there and courses, and you know, really keen to promote this as a as a key skill, really. And uh, there's certainly a, a whole sort of support network that's out there to help people to get into peer review, and but the best one is always going to be your local experienced mentors, who, uh, as Esther mentioned, will be receiving. Um, review requests and be delighted to you know sort of um, share some of that uh, with their their, their trainees and co-producer review Uh, and the important thing is that both people should get you know named and credited for that so that uh, the more junior person you know gets the recognition they deserve as well yeah, and these
1: things are about self development, isn't it? It's that feeling of en- enrichment, and so you, me- you mentioned courses, and 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 uh, I would highlight that that our friends over at CED via the BAD run a run a how to peer review course uh, directed generally towards um, early career researchers within dermatology, whether it's registrars or even before that stage, who maybe have done a bit of reviewing or. Are thinking about dabbling in review, in reviewing? It's a really good course. I've done it myself. I've just looked in. I, I can't see the date for next year's up just yet, but for the last two years, it's been in January, February time. So do keep an eye out on the BID website um, for l- listeners um, for that because it's a it's a really good, quite reasonably priced course um, <laughs> as well. So and it's I think it's usually virtual. So do do look at that.
2: And there are other resources on the BGD website. Our instructions to authors are quite handy because uh, they. Really highlight what we're looking for. We d- we want to demystify the process, and um, so you know, actually, they're, they're there to help authors and and reviewers too in terms of the the checklists that um, we uh, find helpful. To you know, that they help to guide our authors and also our reviewers when they're looking at a paper, and you know, the expectations in terms of the uh, the format of the paper and so on. So I think using those resources might just you know provide make things a bit easier, certainly for for new reviewers. So um, yeah, it's all all that helpful. Thank you. And I would I would
1: just like to ask one final question to you, John, really. Looking back over the time you've had so far with the BJD and maybe even from your experience in reading the BJD beforehand, how do you think that reviewers have changed the journal?
2: Mm. I think our reviewers have been vital to us in several different ways. Firstly, I think there are things that excite reviewers and you can see that as an editor. So, there are, you know, evolving areas of dermatology, you know, the global health field, some of our qualitative work, the the, the deep dive into understanding of the condition. Those sort of elements that, uh, you know, I see reviewers are really passionate about those papers, and, and they've helped us develop that section. I think uh, some papers can be undermined by their statistics, and so as a journal, we've really gone out and tried to bring in a, a group of, of, of brilliant statisticians and methodologists who. Uh, we can just rely on to cover that that base, you know, when we um in the review process. And and then we can have our clinical uh, reviewers uh, sense check the article and, and tell us, well, let's make a difference to patient care. And I, I think that's what has allowed us to grow as a journal, is that we focus on those two areas, that getting methodology as high quality as it can be, and then ensuring that there's a clinical message that will really uh, influence patient care either today or in the near future. And so that's really where I think our reviewers have helped to drive up our our standards. And, uh, you know, it's their hard work that, that we rely on. So, um, yeah, I can't thank them enough.
1: Brilliant. Well, well on that note of thanks and um, that brings us to the end of today's episode of uh, BJD talks uh, we have covered the importance um, of peer review why it matters to journals and particularly to the BJD and we've provided a roadmap for how you as a reviewer might like to break down your review uh, and approach it step by step and of course we'd like to thank all of our peer reviewers and encourage everyone who has been thinking about uh, getting involved with uh, with some review to get stuck in if you've got any questions feel free to um, Message us at uh, well, on whatever social media channel that uh, you use, uh, either Twitter or Instagram, at BRJ Dermatol on Twitter or at BRJ Dermatology on Instagram, uh, or by using the hashtag BJDTalks. Thanks for listening and bye for now.